Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigret, and I'm an author, a pastor, and spiritual director. Every once in a while, I think we meet people who leave an impression on us. And even when we're distant, even when we're far away from these folks, we may have been friends at a different stage in life, whatever it might be. Even when we are far away, we're driving, and we have that mindless moment where they we're thinking of nothing in particular, and this person comes to mind, they still fill us with that feeling of warmth, of hope, of joy. I have a, I have a few people like that in my life. My wife is, is that way. And she's in a different way, of course, but she's one of those people that fills me with joy. But there are some friends I've had over the years that fill me with a different kind of joy because just knowing that they are out there doing what they do, creating what they create, brings a sense of, of happiness and hopefulness to me. And one of those people is Andrew Hendrickson. He's our guest today. Andrew and I went to college together. We attended Mount Vernon Nazarene University together, where he would later uh, teach in the art program. And I'll talk more about what he's doing and what he's done uh, as we go on. But Andrew brings a perspective on wisdom that I think you'll find interesting. Andrew speaks from the perspective of a poet and a painter, and an artist. And a lot of times we don't think about poetry and poems and uh, poems and art and things like that as, as teachers. We think of art as something that some people enjoy and some people don't think they're cut out for it or, you know, I could just never read poetry. It's just so different. And yet from Andrew's conversation, I hope, I hope you'll come to understand that poetry is a thing. A poem is a created thing, even before it's interpreted. A, pa- a painting is a thing on its own. It's not trying to do anything. It's, it's simply trying to be something. And what it's trying to be is a sign and a symbol of wisdom, of hope, of grace, of God, of the divine, of things beyond us, that they can be teachers of wisdom, poems and paintings and art. They can teach us about God, about ourselves, and about others. And so I hope, and actually I kind of know deep down that this episode is going to help you understand that, is going to lead you into a different way of thinking about art and everything associated with it. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you listen to this conversation with my friend, Andrew Hendrickson. Andrew, as we began, we realized the last time I had a significant conversation with you was on a mountainside in Moab, Utah. That's hard to believe. It's twenty years. We're not that old. We are. We are not that old. I don't. I don't know how that twenty years happened. I don't either. But a lot has happened in that in that time. Um, I ended up in Illinois. You ended up on two coasts. In it, I mean, crisscrossed the country yeah. in twenty years. Gosh, that's hard to believe. I'm now that old man who talks about how time passes and is still out, you know, astounded that it actually happened. You know, I'm, I'm so with you. I hear myself and I think, oh, my goodness, I'm, <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> well, I think to start, we'll start where I start everybody, which is to talk a bit about wisdom. And especially because I, I want to know how. Well, we'll start with the definition and we'll go. If you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you begin? You don't have to do the whole thing, but like, where would you start with that? definition yeah um when i started reading philosophy in my in my teens uh it it came it was revelatory to me that that i live within a narrative 
I, I thought at that point that I just got up and I lived and I thought and I moved about the world sort of objectively. Um, and it was really jarring to me that I was being informed by forces that I, I wasn't able to recognize. Um, so I think to answer the question of what wisdom is, at least one avenue in it, into that question for me is to, uh, is to think about what is informing the things that I take as givens. What is informing what I take to be norms? Um, the idea that we're always working and living within a narrative, I think, is, is, is true. And I think that also, that also forces one to say, I mean, let's, let's even say you go back to the Greeks and you say, well, what, to what degree am I a Platonist? And, and why, why might that be important in 2020? To what degree am I being informed by Descartes With, without even knowing much about you know, France in the 16th century? How am I being informed by that? And I think that question for me becomes sort of the bedrock onto which everything else is built because that helps me then discern as I become more literate with it, it helps me discern what do I bury and what do I perpetuate within within the systems that are informing me. Um, and for me, reading philosophy and, and certainly theology has been has been an entryway into just the, the mere recognition of the water that I'm swimming in. Hmm. So knowing that none of us starts from zero, like we're already stepping into a story that's been told before us. So I, I feel like some of that is what we're wrestling with as a culture right now, because we look at crisis, conflict, and suffering as if it's the first time these things have ever happened. Mm -hmm. And it, they're unique because of the context, but not because of the content. Like that kind of stuff has happened before. Even even Descartes, like the I think therefore I am, that sort of hallmark of empiricism, that that's all that's happening again. Right. The self is the self in dialogue with reality is what we're constantly dealing with. And I'm realizing now all the people right now who are listening are like, man, I need to go back and pull out my my college philosophy books. <laughs> but that's <laughs> they, good. That's a good challenge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you recognize this narrative and in knowing what narrative informs um, is part of wisdom. How do you what do you practically do with that? in what you do as a husband, as, as an artist, how does that impact what you do and what you create? Well, I think for me that the recognition of the narrative, both that I'm in and the recognition that I, of the narrative I mean to be telling, which sometimes are different. Sometimes the narrative I mean to be telling is not the one that I'm living in. Um, that, that sets the parameters for values. It sets the parameters for, um, how how might I define what it means to be a good husband? Um, how might I define what the arts ought to do? Is this is this even a good use of time at all? And how how will I know? Um, and I need I need those external influences. I need the recognition of those external influences to help guide, uh, to help inform the thought, um, to help inform my own narrative, and and also shape the narrative that I mean to be telling. Um, rather than just say, well, here's the narrative and I'm going to march on with it. I need it. I need it to be constantly formed. So your story, your narrative led you to fine arts as a, would you use the word vocation? I think I would. It's, it's often hard to say that I'm an artist. It, 
it feels like an aspirational term and it also feels um i don't know it just it feels somehow it feels somehow odd um i sort of shy away from it um but uh yeah i I would say it's vocational it also I, i would say it's vocational insofar as it feels like faithfulness yeah um if i'm pursuing something with that that seems faithful that seems to coincide with vocation Vocation and faithfulness. I I love what you said about that. Like I don't cons- I don't like that term. And I wonder if wondering. I, my wondering is if that term artist. The reason that's do we do we not want to put that on ourselves, or do or is it? But it could be both and, or the way that that term is perceived. Like mm. or you you go home. Let's say Thanksgiving dinner. You know. You go and you sit around the table with the uncles and aunts and everybody and somebody who's never met you said, oh, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm an artist. Like, does that create automatically this, <laughs> oh, conversation or, you know, is it, do you feel like you resist that as a self description or more of a, how it, how it bounces around in the world around you? That's a good question. I, I think in the self description, I think it's, it's aspirational. Um, it, it feels like a calling that I desire to aspire to, even if I haven't arrived at it yet. I think for, let's say, talking with your, your favorite uncle at Thanksgiving, um, I don't think a lot of folks know what to do with the arts. I don't think we often know what to do with poems and paintings, um, other than maybe some offhand thought that it decorates our space or that it um, is, is vaguely creative. Um, but I think it's the... I, I, because I don't think we have a robust understanding of what that is, I sometimes, I hesitate to even say it without then having a four hour conversation around what that might mean. Hmm. And then looping the conversation around to faith. I, f- I feel like when people talk about the intersection between art and faith, it's automatically a history discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a conversation about today. It's a conversation about stained glass and tapestries and things that are stored in Europe. European cathedrals from the Middle Ages, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Manuscripts, yeah. Which is deeply important. Sure. Um, sure. How do you step into that? So there's that also that narrative stream of faith and art. How do you see yourself stepping into that? Well, there's, there's a way in which I think we uh, generally think of the arts as articulating something that we all already know. It just happens to articulate it visually. And I think that's a, that's a grave misunderstanding of what the arts do. Um, you know, there's, there, in contemporary art, there's a lot of didactic art. There's a lot of very topical art about the news. And in modernism, you had art about art was the criticism. I think in 2020, you have art about the news. Um, I think both of those options are sort of flat-footed options, flat-footed approaches about what aesthetics, what, what aesthetics can do, which to be more succinct with that, I think there's a way in which the arts at their best, um, to use Heidegger's term, they unconceal something for us. They unconceal something. So, um, Heidegger has this notion, Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, has this notion that um, that life generally, but the arts specifically, they 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 help um, 
They help unconceal what is concealed, what is hidden. So for Heidegger, things are conceptually inexhaustible, he says. So, so people and birds and God, those things are knowable, but they're not, we can't totalize them. Um, and so I think about the arts and much to be more, to even be even more succinct, I think about the arts the same way I think about a philosophical or theological inquiry, rather than as just illustrating something that we all already know and all already share. I think of it being much more, um, the stakes are far higher than that for me. Yeah. You use the term aesthetics. How, how would you define that for people who may not know, may not have their hands around what they, they think they know what that means, but how would you define that? Um, I mean, generally it's the, it's the philosophy of what poems and paintings and architecture does, but I think we could think of aesthetics as things that are beyond the five senses. How do we, how do we deal with the life that's beyond our ability to touch and taste and see and, and measure in those ways? Um, what, what is the work that poems do? Uh, how should I approach a painting? What does a painting mean? What does an abstract painting mean? What does a piece of music mean? Uh, beyond its lyrics, for instance. Those, those all would be ways of thinking aesthetically, um, thinking about work that the arts do, as opposed to, I like that painting or I like that song. Yeah. I, the things I hear that I just heard while you were talking about that is, you know, the traditional definition of apocalypse. You know, mm -hmm. we see that as the end of days, and really the word just means an unveiling, like a pulling back of a curtain. And so it's interesting that aesthetics are actually a kind of apocalypse, a kind of pulling back the curtain and that there are, like Heidegger says, there are multiple curtains. So right. nobody's ever going to go, well, that's the last painting of a bird that can ever be done. We have done every angle. It has been completed. It's finished. But the other thing I hear is, is Jesus talking about all things that are in darkness are going to be brought into the light. And there's sort of a... Art has had that revealing of the beauty, goodness, and truth, but it's also had the prophetic side. Like mm -hmm. you're talking about art today, about the news. Like a lot of it is has this critique built into it. So it's not only revealing, but it's also revealing with the purpose of questioning. Uh, as an artist, where do you feel like you fit as far as your the way that you create are you, what kind of unveiling are you doing? What kind of apocalypse are you involved in? That's a good question. Uh, the poet Kay Ryan, former U.S. Poet Laureate, said that her poems often begin with an agitation. And, and uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think my own artwork, my own writing, is often informed by a question that I have. Um, I had a dream not long ago that two men were standing in a cornfield at night and I think both men were me in the dream but one man was looking up at the stars and he was rhapsodizing about how the stars aren't even there anymore they're actually just burned out and the light is merely coming to our eyes and he was using that as a way to say you know we, we can't even trust our vision we we he was using it as a way to be kind of cynical and fatalistic and the other man turned to him and said well that that doesn't matter we're, we're not even we're not even close to being screwed yet. Um, and that was the end of the dream. And so, you know, I think about that dream for six months um, and I'm sketching the night sky and I'm sewing large paintings of stars into a black night sky. Um, 
and it's an agitation. I'm working something out. I'm working out my own propensity towards cynicism. I'm working out my own potential potential toward sort of fatalistic um, apathy. And so, you know, I think there's a way in which art can arise out of, generally speaking, I think good art arises out of either a kind of energy or I'm sorry, arises out of a sort of injury or arises out of a kind of abundance. Hmm. Um, it arises out of an injury in the sense that there's something we want to understand about our experience. There's something that we don't seem to understand the contours of um, something about the world generally, something about the world inside ourselves that we need to, um, we need to write toward an understanding of, we need to make toward an understanding of, I think the adage that I don't know what I think until I read what I've written, there's, there's some truth in that. I think on the other side, there's also a sense of an abundance that prosaic language, it's hard for that to hold. How do you, how do you talk about great moments of joy? How do you talk about the sublime? And I think sometimes to look at something, you to look at it directly is to miss it. You have to sort of go around the block and you sort of have to walk around that thing several times, um, ostensibly indirectly to sort of see it, to see it well. Um, but I think my own artwork arises out of questions that don't seem to, I, I don't seem to be able to address those things in other sorts of ways. I think there's also a way in which the arts, you know, if I, if I meet you for the first time and you and I go out to coffee, it's just sort of impolite in the first 15 minutes of our conversation to sort of bring all this stuff to the table. That's just socially impolite, but the arts give us this social permission to say, uh, I, I made this painting, I wrote this poem, I don't have to know you at all, we don't even ever have to meet, and you and I can share this question, I can reveal this question to you, you can, as a viewer or reader, you can participate in that question, your own as well as mine, um, and it gives a sort of social permission for us to talk about the things that I think are, uh, in, in many ways, the most intimate aspects of our lives. And I, I just keep, I, I hear in you this agitation and abundance. They are, <laughs> they're so powerful because they're what motivate most everything we do as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so the, the temptation is to hear this conversation and to hear the depth of it and to think, well, I'm not very intellectual and I don't paint and I don't write. I drive a drill rig for an engineering firm. And yet there's that common experience of, I have a lot of something, I feel prompted, or I have an agitation, I feel like I wanna do something about that. And so what I'm just hearing is how, how just human that impulse is. For you, it builds to, to pieces of art and poetry. For some people, for Terrence Malick, it builds into a film. For, you know, for people who are parenting, it influences how they raise their kids. And, but there was an agitation. So when I first met you, you weren't in as deep into the, you were painting and doing art, but you weren't, you weren't as deep mm -hmm. as you are now. Uh, what was the agitation or abundance that moved you towards fine arts? 
there was a sense, there was a growing sense through my late teens and early twenties that I was thinking things and questioning things that I, for which I didn't have language. I didn't, I didn't have adequate language that would, uh, that would sort of do service to the depth of a question or the depth of an agitation or the depth of an abundance. Um, and through a lot of my twenties, you know, it took me about 12 years to finish undergrad because I didn't have grades and I didn't have any money. And so I would, um, after almost failing out of high school, I, uh, worked labor jobs. I was a roofer and a landscaper and, uh, carried hot water heaters up, um, apartment stairs to replace them and clean the wax seals beneath toilets at an apartment complex. And that was how my twenties were spent. Um, in many ways, that was really good. I think what the arts did for me during those years, particularly during those years, was that it was a way of, when I was working as a land, I was working at an apartment complex as a maintenance man. And I wasn't a very good maintenance man. I didn't really know all the maintenance that I was supposed to be doing. But when my work for the day was through early, um, I would go to a storage closet where they kept used refrigerators. It was something about the Freon and the refrigerators was too expensive to get rid of. So this, this management company just stacked all these refrigerators up in this, in this closet. So I would open the door. And when you open the door, you were sort of met with a wall of refrigerators, but I could climb enough on top of them and then reach down and pull the door behind me and then click on a little light. And I would sit on top of these warm refrigerators and, and I would read until the end of my workday. I think the thing that that, the the reason I bring that up is that it was it was sort of access to another world. If I was reading literature, it was a way in which I felt I felt certainly less alone in the world. Um, I felt that language was given to some of the questions and agitations that I had that I didn't have for which I I was lacking language. Um, and I think I just wanted more of that and and needed more of it. So. There's a way in which we often think of art as sort of vaguely creative and it must be fun. And there's a way in which it is fun, uh, but there's a way in which it's out of necessity. If I knew what I meant, I would just tell you. I, I wouldn't take the time to write the essay or to make the painting. Um, I wouldn't do it if it were sur superfluous and, and, and it didn't feel... Um, if I didn't feel the pressure of the imperative there. Um, so I think finding ways to articulate what I didn't have language for. And sometimes that articulation was in the stitched thread of sewing. Sometimes that articulation was, was in a poem. Um, but it's something I needed and, and need still. So uh, as you're reading on top of the fridge, as you're entering into this space of trying to answer some questions or give language to something that you don't have language for, what was the inf the faith influence for you in that time period? Um, I'm often suspicious of pastors that don't know a lot about the arts. Um, and that's, I think, because we're talking about we're talking about an incarnated Christ that we, that we can't see. And we're talking about a book of scriptures 
where whole chapter, whole whole books of this book, of this larger book, are poems. Um, I, I, it would be hard for me to even know how to think of God, um, except po- poetically. Um, it would be hard for me to think about an, an, an incarnated Christ without thinking about, um, to use the word phenomenologically, how, do, how would that, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, Again, I think there's that sense that there are those things in life that you can't look at directly. You can't, you can't see. If you, look, if you try to look at them directly, you can't see them. And so the way to see them is to sort of go around the briar patch, as it were. And I think there's, there was also, I mean, the, the driving force of the arts through my 20s, or pursuing the arts, was there were, they were theological questions. My, my questions of arts have always been theologically rooted. How should I be in the world? Why am I here? If, if God is there, what does God want from me? And how, do I, how would I even begin to know those things? Um, so it was, I mean, the question of God and the question of how I ought to be in the world is a driving, absolutely driving force uh, for the pursuit of the arts for me. Yeah. So how, how would you describe the current where you are now. So you had this experience in your 20s as we hit at on the top of the hour, top of the hour. Radio comes back to me sometimes. Oh my gosh. As we started the conversation, we talked about how neither you nor I are young anymore. Um, How would you describe this confluence of expressing things with no words and expressing, knowing how to express the ideas and beliefs about God now where are you in the stage of life you're in right now? Well, I certainly still feel my agitations, as my wife can attest to. Um, but I think there's also a way in which I think of the arts as a very, as a humanizing act. Um, I've had gallery exhibitions, and I think of one particularly where a woman was in front of a painting I had made, and she began to cry. Um, and then later she wrote me this email about what that had meant to her. And so we were having this conversation, but it's a way of this stranger and I were somehow having a conversation about some of the things that are most in- intimate to us and some of the things um, that are the least socially acceptable to talk about or, or sort of evade our, our language. Um, so I think about the arts as a humanizing force. I think about them as a way of empathy. I, um, I might have an experience now either good or bad that I want to share with you. And I don't, I don't know how to do that. And I can say to you, you know, Casey, it's, it's like this, it's like this metaphor here, right? Then you and I both see this metaphor, be that pictorial form in a painting, be that a stanza in a poem. And you and I can share this thing. And we say, yes, I, I understand. I hear you. I hear that thing that you don't know how to say. And you didn't speak it so much as you made it. Your hands made it. There's a smartness there that your fingers, the dexterity of your fingers articulated something that, um, that you didn't know how to say, but I heard. Um, and I think there's also a way now that um, it is certainly in the making, but I think part of the arts are sort of attuning to the world around us that I want to perpetuate. So when I was teaching at the university, I was teaching a class on composition, and I found that when I would leave class and drive home, I experienced the world a bit differently 
on the way home. I noticed perspective lines. I noticed the shapes and the color nuances uh, of the world around me. So there was an attuning to, I, I, I was able to inhabit my life in greater ways post teaching class than I was on the way to class. And, and I, I, that's something to pay attention to. Um, it feels in some ways like the work of liturgy. It feels like the arts. I mean, I think, I think the liturgy is artful. I think it's performance art. I mean, I think Jesus turning over the tables in the temple is, is a performative act. It's a performance piece of art. Um, and I think there's a way in which the arts help attune my system to many of the same things that liturgy helps attune my system to. And I need those things actually desperately. I, I've said many times that I've been, I came to the arts far more out of desperation than out of, you know, whimsy or creativity, which is the same reason I go to liturgy out of desperation. Yeah. Man, there's such the one. Th I just heard something that I felt like was so powerful, which is how there is a possibility in the arts to be heard. There's so many people I know who just want someone to hear them. They don't even care if you have an opinion or, or if you have a solution. They just want to be heard, or they want to hear someone else say something that they identify with. So there's a normalizing effect. Mm -hmm. When you create a metaphor and you attach it to and you present it in a way that they can see, like the woman in the gallery, that you can see it and identify with it, there's sort of a community that's formed, which is interesting because that's what liturgy mm -hmm. does. If we all have the same prayer we pray on January the 15th as part of our divine hours or our daily office, there's a community that's built in right. the midst of that. That's right. I, I think of, I often used to tell students about a poem from Kay Ryan called Turtle. And the whole poem is about the, the clunkiness of being a turtle in the world. The way the turtle walks over the grass inefficiently is slow. The turtle has to take care not to get turned over uh, on, their, on their back. Um, but the whole poem is, is about the clunkiness of being a turtle. And yet the poem isn't about reptiles at all. Right? The poem is about how it feels in the world when one feels clunky and inefficient um, and is always at risk of not being, always trying to not be turned over. So there's a way that her poem about a turtle becomes an incredibly compassionate and humanizing uh, point of connectivity. And she did it indirectly. It's, the poem is ostensibly about a reptile. And yet at the end of the poem, you feel less alone in the world. That's the work of the arts. Yeah. So what does art look like for a person who is not someone who creates it, but who engages with it? Is What is an, a practice of engaging with the fine arts? Because so I'm now taking the spotlight off of you as the artist or, cre or aspiring artist, to use your term. Um, and putting it on the person who says, I don't want to be that person who is ignorant of how the fine arts interact with my life and faith. What would a practice look like for someone who's like, I, I, I want to access that you've awakened an agitation mm -hmm. in me. 
I want to access these things? How do they begin? How would they begin with that? That's a good question. That's an important question. Um, I think we often think of other areas of life as needing, we need to be educated in certain aspects of life. So I would never claim to be a cell biologist, right? I wouldn't pick up a biology textbook with no training and think that I could understand what was happening in that. For, for various reasons, we often think of the arts as though one can step into them and, and sort of understand them fully with, with no background and no literacy. Uh, and that's just, that's just not the case for any of us. Um, so I think, a, I think gaining or, or working toward gaining levels of aesthetic literacy is, is paramount. I think that's step one. I think, I think it's important to, rather than to go to the gallery and look around and, and think one should sort of uh, be versed in all these forms and what is happening in the work, I think it's important to say, well, what does a painting do? What is its function? Um, how do I read a poem? What, what do line breaks in a poem mean? What might different stanzas be about? Um, and so I think it's, it's okay to, to need some guidance in the arts, just the way we would need guidance. And my father-in-law recently helped me change my oil in my car. Um, I wouldn't have known how to do that without his help. Um, so he can help me do that and I can help him learn something of what form does. Um, so I think it's important to, to have some, to gain some literacy before, before we have to know, we have to learn how to see stuff, right? We have to learn how to, we learn how to read, we learn how to see, we learn how to observe. Um, and I think those are good places to start, important places to start. Yeah. There's often a sense when people go into a gallery you know, this is cliche, but we've all heard this many times where people will walk into a gallery and say, well, I don't know what's going on here. What is the artist trying to say? Um, which is an understandable question if I'll be at the wrong question, right? Art paintings probably shouldn't say something, they should be something. And so we need to learn how to unpack what it is they're trying to be. Hmm. So what does faithfulness to your vocation look like today? What's the work that you're doing right now that you feel like is the center of the, of the mark for you? That's a good question. Um, well, if a, if a part, if a large part of the gospel is about new ways of being human, uh, I, I think the arts ought to facilitate, um, perpetuate those new ways of being human. Sometimes those things might be social critique, and sometimes they might be simply gaining greater awareness of oneself in the world and nuances in, in both. Um, I'm working on a few different series right now. One of the series of works that I'm working on is called Flags for New Ways of Being. Um, I was working in an elementary school last year in a special ed class, and I noticed that in the elementary school hallways, they had flags from nations all around the world. And I didn't recognize most of them, in fact. And I was looking at these things every day for six months. Um, and I started to think about, well, what, what would be an appropriate flag if we were to figure out new ways of being human? How would we have a flag that would embody those ways of being? What would that even begin to look like? Um, I noticed at the school, a lot of the nation's flags on the walls were 
very, very stark and very strong and strong colors and sort of minimal designs. And the flags didn't seem to look like the way a life looks. And I have been trying to make works that are a little more honest about the way a life feels. Uh, they have parts of them that are grungy and clunky and parts of them that are beautiful. Um, they're unstretched canvases, so they're basically big pieces of cloth tacked to the wall. And so the ends of them fray, the ends of them sort of twist, and when paint gets on them, it drips off. And so there's a, there's a grittiness to them. Um, I would rather make work that looks like a mind thinking than a mouth making a statement. Uh, and so I want these flags for new ways of being. I want the viewer to see a mind working out both what an aspirational self is, but, but ways that a flag can contain ways we've tried to amend grief um, that, have, that have both lamentation and abundance in them. Um, I'm working on another set of works that are human-sized suits. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in the Nazarene church, on Sunday night church, the pastor would often ask for prayer requests, and people would stand up and give their requests, and at the end of that session, he would pray for them. But I am particularly rem remembering the people who would stand up and say, Pastor, it's unspoken, and then they would sit back down. And thinking about the ways that, that what they didn't say was supercharged, what they didn't say both kind of grounded them to the floor, but it also, there was something unleashed in them saying, Pastor, it's unspoken. And so I've been making suits, uh, human-sized suits, and one particular suit is painted sort of a bone white, and so it looks more like skin than cloth. Um, and out of the arms come braided ropes, and so the suit kind of stands in its own pond of the braided ropes that are coming out of where the hands would be coming out of the suit. And it might be a good piece and it might be a bad piece, I'm not sure, but it's, but it's my way of thinking about well, what was happening when someone stood up on Sunday night and said, Pastor, it's unspoken. How, how can I see that? How can I see that moment well? Because it feels like a moment that was powerful and is worth paying attention to. Um, so those, those are two of the series that are happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, a thought occurs to me. I'd love to know if somebody's in the midst of sort of a faith crisis and they are they've been given a foundation, but the foundation seems to be crumbling or unsteady, or they're, they're being asked by life and experience to question or, or even reject some things. How do you see fine arts serving them, whether it's poetry or, or visual art in, in whatever medium? Uh, how do you see fine arts serving that person in the midst of that sort of faith crisis? Well, there's a, there's a way in which I think the arts should look like life, right? So there's a way in which certainly the European cathedrals and the stained glass are really important and aspirational and the Gothic arches are, are important aspects of a person of faith engaging the arts. But I think the arts also need to address and be open to addressing the most gritty, the most questioning, um, the darkest aspects of life too, not, not in a way of deifying them, but as a way of stating them uh, with empathy and saying, yes, this too is a part of human experience. Um, 
Heidegger has this idea that he calls thrownness, this idea that we are, we don't so much confront our lives as that we sort of wake up in the middle of it, right? We, we, we're already in the mix of it. And so by nature, it has a sort of unsteady quality to it. Um, but that's also God's world, right? And that's also a part of experience for Christians, non-Christians, people of faith, people of other faiths at, at any rate, it's, it's, I think there's a way in which the arts need to contain those things to answer it more succinctly. I think there's a way in which find the work that, that speaks something of the thing that you're feeling, uh, but also find the work that speaks something of what you hope to feel, find something that's aspirational as well as uh, something that articulates where you are in the moment. Um, mm. But I think there's also a way in which a crisis of faith is so complicated and so incredibly nuanced um, that I think it, I think it is, I can't imagine what else other than the arts would be the thing that you would go to that would also contain that kind of nuance and that kind of complexity. Right. I mean, there's, um, we talked earlier about people feeling heard in my experience. There are moments, there have been times in, in Christian communities where, Sometimes a crisis of faith comes about because someone's experience, they don't, they don't feel like their experience has been heard. Um, and I think there's a way in which the arts need to, to hear abundance and the arts need to hear injury. Um, so the whole span of it, that, that aesthetic span is there. I mean, arts should look like a life. Hmm. It seems like a fitting place to stop. Art should look like a life. And you're a gem. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for your faithfulness to a vocation. And uh, I'm happy that people are going to get to see that some of the work that you're doing and, and got to hear what you had to say today. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Casey. It was great to talk with you. Andrew Hendrickson is, as he said, an aspiring artist and poet. He has created visual art that you can find on uh, his website, which I'll share in the show notes, uh, has studied arts, philosophy, and religion uh, at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, where we went together, but also he studied arts at the University of Florida, as well as most recently at Yale University. Uh, you can find more information about Andrew. You can also see some of his art at the links in the show notes. I would encourage you to go check that out. I think you'll really appreciate it. If you're listening on iTunes, thank you. Um, as I always say, and it, hopefully it doesn't sound like a broken record, please feel free to rate and review the podcast so I know how you feel about what's going on. Uh, also, if you're listening on Spotify, thank you. If you're streaming via my website, thank you for that as well. If you know someone who would enjoy these conversations, uh, it's very easy to share them uh, via social media or a text or an email, whatever you want to do. Uh, please feel free to share an episode with someone that you feel like could benefit from what you're hearing. And so the challenge I want to give you from Andrew is, where are you seeing or hearing God in the things that have been made? 
where are you hearing God in the words that we use every day? Or maybe there is a call and an invitation for you to begin looking at art or poetry in a different way. Where is God inviting you to find him in a medium where you haven't you haven't thought to look before? And so, with that being said, may you go to this week and notice the wisdom of God that is popping through everywhere around us. Be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.